0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith. And you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Pope Benedict Cardinal Ratzinger was elected to the papacy on April 18, 2005. And many, myself included, waited for the man who had headed the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith to clarify a few things, to, in a sense, throw down the hammer. Some of us waited for his liturgical reforms and declarations. But, a short eight months later, his first encyclical was published, not on liturgy or some great, hard, pronouncement clarifying the errors which have been taking place in the church. But he brought us back to what I would describe as ground zero, It's the starting point, and published his encyclical, Deus Caritas Est. God is love. God is love. And when he published his encyclical, It touched me in a special way because I realized that he understood the situation deeply, clearly, in the church. That we had to go back to the first catechesis to remind people of who God is, and then to remind people of who we are, made in His image and likeness. And he began in this way. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. These words from the first letter of St. John express with remarkable clarity the heart of the Christian faith. The Christian image of God and the resulting image of mankind and its destiny. In the same verse, the Pope continues, St. John also offers a kind of summary of the Christian life. We have come to believe in God's love. In these words, the Christian can express the fundamental decision of his life. Being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event a person, which gives a new horizon and a decisive direction. So with this foundation, from this starting point, as Pope Benedict later calls it in his encyclical, I want to begin our study this evening on the new evangelization. From this starting point, in the heart of Christ, on this, the great feast day of the Sacred Heart, and the great feast day of this church. My brothers and sisters, I don't think I need to tell you that we face a crisis in the church which has rarely, if ever, been experienced in her 2,000 year history. As Sherry Waddell spells out in her first chapter of her book Forming Intentional Disciples, The crisis is real. And while we may not feel that crisis all that strongly in the Arlington Diocese, I dare you to do as I did two weeks ago with my family. I dared to travel outside the boundaries of my parish and attend church somewhere else. I was embarrassed for my family I was embarrassed for my children. I am a married priest with six children. I was embarrassed for the priest. I was embarrassed for myself. I was embarrassed for the church. And I was embarrassed for God. The situation across this country and throughout the formerly Christian world is bad. Churches in many places, are empty. And I don't want to beat you over the head tonight with terrible statistics. I think you know the situation quite well and how blessed you are here in the Arlington Diocese. But I do need to hang a few dirty clothes out on the line because we face a real situation and a real crisis in our church, in our nation, in our world our Catholic population in formerly Catholic countries is aging. The young people, attracted by the false enticements of the world, are being swallowed up by a rampant secularism. Truly, our youth are being swallowed up by a demonic storm that is increasing in power day by day. As Waddell shows convincingly, the statist- and the statistics defend, if something drastic is not done in the next 10 to 20 years, we will cease to have a priest shortage in this country because there simply won't be enough Catholics to serve. Most will have died out. And the children aren't going to church. For me, one of the scariest statistics and the most telling which will drive us in the direction of our subject this evening is that if you want to keep someone going to church regardless of the church the best thing you can do for them statistically if you want them to continue going to a church the best thing you can do for them is to make them a Protestant because the odds as a Catholic is that they will stop going eventually Why? There are many reasons given by those who leave the church, but the most prevalent one, and the saddest for me, is the response. I wanted more out of my faith. I wanted more. How sad. How sad. Because they stand within the very place called Catholic for a reason. Because it has everything we could possibly want. In his letter to the bishops of the Catholic Church, a year after his election, Pope Benedict stated, in vast areas of the world, the faith is in danger of dying out like a flame which no longer has fuel. God is disappearing from the human horizon And with the dimming of the light which comes from God, humanity is losing its bearing with increasingly evident destructive effects. I think we see that destruction in the face of our children being aborted daily. What can be done? What can be done? In the midst of this crisis, which certainly reaches back not just to the pontificate of Pope Benedict, but but 40, 50, 60, even 70 years in our church and in our country, in the midst of this crisis, God gave to the church a very saintly pope in John Paul II. It was John Paul that first used the phrase new evangelization. And the context in which he used it reveals much about its meaning. So if you'll allow me, I want to share with you a little story of his first use of this phrase and how it ignited a firestorm in a good way within the church. I'd like to paint a little picture for you to give you a better vantage point from which to understand the call of Karawaita to this new evangelization you know probably the context of his life. He grew up in communist Poland. He witnessed firsthand the suffering of the people who had been stripped of hope. He was raised in his later teenage years in Krakow, and he lived through the German occupation of World War II. He narrowly, and I mean narrowly, escaped arrest and certain death by the Gestapo. The point is that he witnessed the destruction of Christian society, Christian culture in Poland firsthand. He knew from experience what happens to a society when God is removed. When God, as Pope Benedict said, disappears from the human horizon. I want you to imagine with me for a moment the picture and borrow from the words of Dr. Edward Sri. On the edge of the city of Krakow, the communists had erected a new city and called it Nowa Huta, literally, the new Steelworks. The city was designed to be the perfect place for work. 40,000 concrete apartments and huge steel factories. For the communists, the city was the icon of the new Poland, a Poland which had forgotten its Catholic identity, a Poland which had forgotten its God. Nowa Huta was the first city in Poland built without a Catholic church, and the authorities refused to allow one to be built until Karol Wutwia came to power. He made Nowa Huta the focus the focal point of his fight against the communist regime. And after a 20 year battle, he finally won the right to build and consecrate a church there. Shortly after that consecration, he was called to Rome and elected pope. And less than two years later, he boarded an airplane and flew back to his homeland. And where do you think he went? but directly to that city. And he gave a homily there with these words. In these new times, these new conditions of life, the Gospel is again being proclaimed. A new evangelization has begun as if it were a new, pro- new proclamation, even if in reality it is the same as ever. The cross stands high over a changing world. And here I think we learn a critical point about what the church is calling us to today in the call of the new evangelization. As Pope Benedict says, it is new not in its content, but in its inner thrust, open to the grace of the Holy Spirit which constitutes the force of a new law of the Gospel that always renews the church. It is new in ways that correspond with the power of the Holy Spirit, which are suited to the times and situations. New because of being necessary even in countries like Poland that have already received the proclamation of the Gospel. John Paul II says, it is not therefore a matter of inventing a new program. The program already exists. It is a plan Found in the Gospel and in the living tradition of the church, it is the same as ever. And here, I believe, we come then to a turning point in our discussion on the nature of the new evangelization by asking a basic, maybe you think a simple question, but certainly an important one that we get it right. I ask you, why does the church exist? Why does the church exist? I'd like you to pick up a pen from your table, if you have one, and I don't want you to share with your neighbor, or if you don't want to write it down, you can just think about it for 30 seconds. Answer that question with one or two words. Why does the church exist? Why does the ch- what is the purpose of her existence? Okay. Pope Paul VI said this. Evangelizing is in fact the grace and vocation proper to the church. It is evangelizing. It is her deepest identity. She exists in order to evangelize. That answer may strike you as strange or funny. You may have said she exists in order to forgive sins. She exists in order to baptize children. She exists in order to celebrate the liturgy and give people communion. She exists, she exists, she exists. But Pope Paul VI says she exists in order to evangelize. I'm not saying she doesn't exist for these other purposes. In fact, I would say that those other purposes are not other at all. In fact, the sacraments of the church are her most effective evangelization tool. But he says very clearly, she exists to evangelize. Evangelizing is indeed her deepest identity. Why does he say this? I want to ask you two questions which will shape our our, our time together tonight. First, what does it mean to evangelize? What does it mean to evangelize? And more fundamentally, what is the church? I'll begin with the second one. I'll begin with the second one because it's more basic. What is the church? I'll give you a little philosophical principle. I'm going to share with you guys three philosophical principles tonight. You say, "Ah, I can't do philosophy." Don't worry, you can do this. The first principle is that action follows being. Repeat that with me: action follows being. That means that what a thing does is based upon what it is. Huh? It's important because you can come to find out what a thing is if you know what it does and vice versa, vice versa. You can come to know what a thing is supposed to do if you know what it is. The problem I think we face in the church today too often is that most people don't know what the church is and certainly don't know what the church is supposed to do. And we're going to hopefully solve this problem tonight. Action follows being. If we can discover what the church is, then we will know what it's supposed to do. Huh? If, it, if it's a dog, it's supposed to bark. Huh? If it's a dog, it's supposed to bark. If it's a church, it's supposed to do something. We need to discover what that is. Cardinal Journey in his work, the theology of the church, so, theology on the church, his work on ecclesiology, says this. During the time when he lived among us, there were three ways of looking at Jesus. Some only saw in him this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. Others thought of Elias or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Still others finally were able to to say to him, my Lord and my God. Similarly, there are three views that one can take of the church. That of the man on the street and the soup, simple newspaper reader, and we know what the newspapers say about us. That of the more astute observer who discerns its exceptional importance, the role of the church in society, for example. And finally, the view of faith. I'm, I think of, of Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. What does Nicodemus say to Jesus? <laughs> He says, "He says, we know who you are. We know who you are. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you don't have a clue who I am. You don't have a clue who I am. And that begins a long process of Jesus revealing to Nicodemus who he is. That process will not come to its conclusion, its finality, until we see Nicodemus at the tomb of Christ, having undergone a conversion which took the entire gospel story. I would encourage you to stop, to spend some time tonight, maybe over the next few days, maybe over the next few months, years, and during the rest of your life, to ponder the question, what is the church? Why does the church exist? To understand the answer to this question, what it is and why it exists, I believe that it's important to ask who founded it and when it was founded. So I put this back to you. Who founded it and when was it founded? Write that down for yourself. Scribble down. Who founded the church? Come on, the answer should be pretty easy, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Kristen, you're not allowed to answer that question. <laughs> Who founded the church and when was it founded? Hmm? What's that? Easter, Sunday night. Easter but come on, who founded it on Easter Sunday night? Yeah. How many of you say Jesus founded the church? How many of you agree on Easter Sunday night? That's not a bad one. When else? Maybe some of you thought of Pentecost, Pentecost, the birthday of the church, right? Wrong. (laughs) Sorry, sir, you're wrong, but we're going to get to the answer. Okay, what's that? On Holy Thursday. It's a good answer, isn't it? What about when Jesus gave Peter the keys? Huh? Wrong, 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 and wrong. Let me share with you a quotation from the Shepherd of Hermas. This quotation goes back to the the, uh, middle of the 2nd century. It's a poetic text. It's very beautiful. I could choose so many of the early church fathers that would have given us this answer, but this text is, is quite beautiful. It says, While I slept, brethren, a revelation was made to me by a very handsome young man who said to me, who do you think the old woman is from whom you received the little book? I said, the Sibyl. You were wrong, he said. She is not. Who is she then, I said. The church, he replied. So I said to him, why then is she old? Because he said she was created the first of all things. That is why she is old. It was for her sake that the world was established. Vatican II says, "Already present in figure in the beginning of the world, this Church was prepared in marvelous fashion in the history of the people of Israel and in the Old Alliance." I came across this fantastic quote from Saint Perforios that I'm going to share with you. He says, "This the Church is without beginning." without end and eternal. Just as the triune God, her founder, is without beginning, without end and eternal. She is uncreated, just as God is uncreated, She existed before the ages, before the angels, before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world as the Apostle Paul says. She is a divine institution and in her dwells the whole fullness of divinity. She is an expression of the richly varied wisdom of God. She is the mystery of mysteries. She was concealed and was revealed in the last times. The church remains unshaken because she is rooted in the love and wisdom, and providence of God, the three persons of the Holy Trinity constitute the eternal church. The three persons of the Holy Trinity constitute the eternal church. We face a problem. And that is that most most people see in the church not what this great saint sees, but rather they see something made up, something built, something invented. We need a new vision, a new horizon, as Pope Benedict calls it. The nature of the church is rooted in the heart of God Himself, and it is revealed to us in the creation of the world, and beautifully in the creation of man in the first chapters of Genesis. So I want to ask you to open your Bibles. Catholics, how many of you brought a Bible tonight? Good. Hold it up proud. Put your cell phones away, Father. Put your. I was on the Sea of Galilee. And the tour guide pulled out his cell phone on the boat to read the the text of Jesus walking on water, and his cell phone died. And I was the sole Catholic that had a Bible on me. (laughs) Bring your Bibles wherever you go. It's your sword. In the grocery store. How many conversations I've had in the middle of grocery stores. Bring your Bible with you wherever you go. Keep it in your purse. I know, your purse is big enough. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1. For those that, uh, that don't have a Bible with them, you can go back to uh, a wonderful bookstore. And Victoria? Valerie. It was close. Valerie is going to sell you a Bible right now. <laughs> My brothers and sisters, if the church is rooted in the life of the Holy Trinity himself, then we better come back to a more fundamental question, and that is, who is God? And how is he revealed to us in the first chapters of the first book of the Bible? You have your Bible open, or maybe some of you have memorized the first chapter of Genesis, (laughs) I hope. God is revealed to us in a particular way in this chapter. He's revealed to us as a certain kind of God, if you will. So I ask you, how is God revealed to us in Genesis chapter 1? How is God revealed to us in Genesis? Who is God? Good. Most people will come at me and say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'd say, stop! Stop! Let the Bible talk to you. Let the Scriptures reveal something to you. He's revealed to us exactly as a Creator. As a Creator. And Pope Benedict reminds us that here Scripture presents us with something radically new about the image that man has for God. An image which stands against the common notions of paganism at the time. And he points out two facts that are significant about the revelation of God as Creator in Genesis chapter 1. He says, first, that all other gods are not God at all. This is the most radical statement in the context of a polytheistic society in which the people, the church of the Old Testament, was living. And the second more important for us today is that the universe in which we live has its source in God and was created by Him. God is the source of all that exists. The whole world comes into existence by the power of His creative Word. Consequently, His creation is dear to Him for it is willed by Him. His creation is dear to Him for it is willed by Him. And why does He say that? Over and over and over again in Genesis chapter 1, almost like a litany in the church, over and over and over again, beating us over the head so we cannot escape it. There is a phrase which is repeated over and over and over again about God's relationship with what He has created. And God saw that it was good. 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 good. Seven times in one chapter of the Bible is repeated this phrase, and God saw that it was good. So I ask you, what does it mean for something to be good? We use the word all the time. huh? You think you're wine. The wine's good. Right? You went and got the wine or the salmon. huh? You desired it. To see something is good, is to desire it and desire is the most fundamental movement of the human will desire is the most fundamental movement of the will and when our will when our desires are oriented not at wine and salmon but at more important things when our desires are oriented at persons we call that desire Love. He saw that it was good. And he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. Joseph Pieper in his work on love explains that love is the affirmation of the existence of the other. It is to say to the other, it is good that you are. How wonderful that you exist. But there is something more that we can glean from the story of creation. We know that God is love and that God loves His creation and that love is by nature self-diffusive. Love is the the giving of our life to the Beloved. And there's no greater love hath any man than to give his life for his friend. Love is the sharing of those things which are most important to us. And there is nothing more important than our life. For when we have given our life to another, there is nothing left to give. We know that God loves His creation, and that love is by nature self-diffusive. It seeks to share itself with another. I'm going to give you a second principle now, which you can write down if you're taking notes. And that is, what is last in execution is always first in intention. What is last in execution is always first in intention. Ladies, you want to feed your children chocolate chip cookies. Huh? That's your first intention. Huh. But the actual feeding of your children the chocolate chip cookies is always the last thing you do, isn't it? There's a whole process by which you come to the point of your action. The mixing of the flour and the water and this and that and the other thing. I don't know. I don't make chocolate chip cookies, but I'm sure that's how it happens. (laughs) And suddenly, presto, bango, you got the thing you had first intended. What is first in intention is always last in execution. And we can apply this principle to the story of creation. What was the last thing that God created? Yeah, man. What is first in intention is always last in execution. Man, made in the image and likeness of God, is the crown jewel of God's creation. We, you and me, are the crown jewel of His creation. We are the purpose for which He created. And Moses relates that when the sun set on the sixth day, the final day of creation, God looked at His creation, crowned as it was by the creation of one in His image and likeness, one to partake of His nature, a son and a daughter. And Moses relates that God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very lovable. It was very worthy of sharing his life with. St. Ephraim the Syrian says, It was not paradise that gave rise to the creation of mankind. Rather, it was for Adam alone that paradise was planted. And St. Basil the Great says, Being in the image of the Creator, man is honored above the heavens, above the sun, above the choirs of the stars. And Moses describes this crown jewel as the image and likeness of God Himself. The image and likeness of God Himself. That's how he describes you and me. The incarnation, the enfleshment of God's image and likeness. Who's image and likeness? But my brothers and sisters, God has just been described to us in a particular way. Hasn't He? Who is God? In Genesis chapter 1, preceding this very text, God is revealed to us in a particular way exactly as the Creator. And we are made in His image and likeness. Whose image and likeness? The image and likeness of the creator of the world. Joseph Pieper says, It is God who in the act of creation anticipated all conceivable human love and said, I will you to be. It is good, very good that you exist. Human love, therefore, must inevitably be always an imitation and kind of repetition of this perfected and in the exact sense of the word, creative love of God. But if all goes happily as it should, then in human love, something more takes place than a mere echo, a mere repetition and imitation. What takes place is a continuation. And in a certain sense, even a perfecting, of that which was begun in the course of creation. And we see this very clearly in the story which follows. God tells Adam and Eve to do three things in paradise. And we know that when you come to know what a thing does, it's going to tell you something about what it is. God tells them to be fruitful and multiply Hmm? to procreate to bring children into the world to have dominion over creation what kind of a person has dominion over creation yeah a king a king and when a king has dominion exercises his dominion what does he do not like a dictator our modern-day rulers are more like dictators than kings we need a good Catholic monarchy back, fathers. You know. He cares
0: for
1: it. Yeah, he cares for it. He, a king sets his dominion, his kingdom, in order, doesn't he? So that the parts of the kingdom work together, so that it flourishes, huh? so it has economic, economic prosperity, so that the people of his kingdom are healthy and do well. They flourish. They're fruitful. And finally, he told them to till and keep the garden. And what type of a person tills and keeps a garden? A gardener. Yeah, it's not by accident that Jesus appeared as a gardener to Mary Magdalene when the restoration of all things took place. Because this is what man was supposed to do in the very beginning, to till and to keep the garden. And by tilling and keeping the garden, he would make it fruitful. He would continue, as Joseph Pieper says, he would continue and in a certain sense perfect the seed which God had planted in the beginning. He would bring it to its conclusion as God had intended it at the first. Man was meant to be a creator in the image and likeness of the Creator of all things. He was meant to make things grow and be fruitful and come to be the way God had intended them to be. St. Gregory of Nyssa says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We possess the one by creation, we acquire the other by free will. In the first structure, it is given us to be born in the image of God. By free will, there is formed in us the "...being in the likeness of God. Let us make man in our image, but let him also become according to our likeness. God has given the power for this. If He had created you also in the likeness, where would your privilege be? Why have you been crowned? And if the Creator had given you everything, how would the kingdom of heaven open to you? While the other has been left incomplete... This is so that you might complete it yourself and might be worthy of the reward which comes from God. And this brings us to our final consideration of the creation narrative and the heart of our topic on evangelization this evening. What exactly is man's job? How exactly is he to, in the words of Joseph Pieper, continue the creative act of God? Yes, all in creation was made for man, but holding to our principle that what is last in execution is first in intention. Man and all of creation were to find their fulfillment, not on the day in which they were created, but on the final day of the creation narrative, the Sabbath day. And on that first Sabbath day, what did God do? He rested. You know, I think we have an image of God at the, on this on the last seventh day, and he's exhausted. Oh, finally! And he takes a Bud Light and smashes it is over his head. But the creation narrative does not say this about God. It doesn't say God was tired. It describes his rest very differently. What did God do on the seventh day? What did God do when he rested? He blessed creation. And what happens when a thing is blessed? Come on, I was upstairs with, it was Faye, right? Your your wonderful lady that works around here. And I was helping her with the holy water. I didn't bless it, Father. You still got to go bless the holy (laughs) water. Yeah, and the people had drained the holy water and you had to fill a whole new thing up. You guys are drinking this holy water like it's going out of style. What happens when a thing is blessed? It becomes holy. What's that? It
0: becomes, holy. it
1: becomes holy and holiness is an attribute of God alone. When a thing is blessed, it becomes associated with God. It is filled up with his life. This is why we take things which are blessed and we kiss them. We bow down to them. Because we bowed down before the life of God, which has filled this thing of creation. This is what God did on the seventh day when he rested. And you and I are made in his image and likeness. I ask you, if God rested on the seventh day, what are we supposed to do on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day? What did God do on the Sabbath day? He blessed it. What are you supposed to do then in His image and likeness? My brothers and sisters, we are made in the image and likeness of God. And that Sabbath day is not made for God alone, but it is made for us who are made in His image and likeness. And when a thing is blessed, it is filled up with God's life. This was the original purpose, the perfection of Adam and Eve that they were not only to bring children into this world and not only till and keep a garden and have dominion over it, but they were to take the things that were given into their hands in creation and fill them up with God's life. It's not by accident that when Jesus came to restore all things, He took bread and wine and water and oil and the things of this world and He divinized them because that was God's plan in the beginning because God is Love and love seeks to share its life with the beloved, and you are made in his image and after his likeness. I should have uh, had my stopping point about 30 seconds later in my notes, so I apologize. But we got to pick up right where we left off. I made the point no one reading this text properly would consider the seventh day for God alone. No, man is to image God in this way too. In His blessing of creation. In His sharing of God's life with the creation around Him. And there's one critical result of this process which God gave us. This gift which God gave us. And that is that when we do our job, when we share the life we have received with others, we and those around us become one with God through sharing in His own blessed life. We share a common life together, and we are bound together as He was bound together from all eternity this was the purpose of creation in the beginning. This was the purpose of creation in the beginning. To make manifest on earth the truth of who God is. This is the nature of the church. His people and all of creation united to Him in a universal bond of love. The church is the communion of the Holy Trinity. As I said, this was God's plan in the beginning, to make us sharers in His own blessed life, to make us partakers of His divine nature, that we might do what He does. In other words, we were designed to be a family in the reflection of the Holy Trinity. But notice that... Man's role in participation in the image and likeness of God on the seventh day creates a dependency. It creates a relationship. And in all true relationships that share something together, there is a dependency which is formed. God made us in His image and likeness, the crown jewel of His creation, that we might do what He does. That all of creation might become dependent upon the gift of divine life from us who are made in His image and likeness. That all of the created order would be dependent upon Adam and Eve for the gift of divine life. This is why the fall was so universally disastrous. Because God created us in an organic relationship. And in any organic relationship, parts of that organism are dependent upon other parts of that organism. The whole created order was placed in the hands of the one who was made to be like God. The whole of the created order was placed in our hands. And when Adam and Eve refused to live out that gift, to do what God had made them to do, namely to bless creation and share God's eternal life with it, to divinize it and fill it up with His life, when they refused to do that, when they refused to be dependent upon the One from whom they received life, the whole of the created order fell at their hands. Instead of joy, sadness, and tears. Instead of health, sickness. Instead of life, death. The refusal to be dependent the refusal to receive the gift which God had offered to them and then to do according to their nature. Why did God make us this way? Why did He not just run an end run around us and make it all all right? The answer is simple, and that is that God is love, and love is self-diffusive. The Trinity is a shared life from all eternity, We share in his life, in who and what he is. He could do no other. He invited us into a relationship of who he is, and in a relationship of dependency upon one another. This is why we began this evening with the quotation from Pope Benedict's encyclical, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and, a God, and God abides in him. These words express with remarkable clarity the heart of the Christian faith, the Christian image of God and the resulting image of mankind and its destiny. God's love for us is fundamental for our lives And it raises important questions about who God is and who we are. And here we do well to remind ourselves of the kind of love God has for us. Christ himself gives us a flesh and blood incarnation of these concepts by contemplating his pierced side, Pope Benedict says, his sacred heart. We begin to discover the path along which our life and love must move. So let us move now into the New Testament. We encounter this incarnation of God's love. As Pope Benedict says, in the pierced side of Christ, we see tangible, enfleshed, the reality of God's plan from the very beginning in the face of Christ. We call Jesus our Savior, do we not? But sadly, I think we let those words just fly out of our mouth too often. Jesus is our Savior. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by calling Him our Savior? To say somebody saved you, He has to save you from something and to save you for something. Jesus indeed is our Savior because He has saved us from the disastrous effects of the refusal of Adam and Eve to live out their image and likeness of God. He came to reverse what they did. To restore to us our proper nature in the image and likeness of God. To allow us once again to do what Adam and Eve were meant to do in the beginning. To fill up creation with God's life. And to make us once again partakers of the divine nature. To make us once again filled up in our life with His image and likeness. To be made like him, according to his nature, to be made his children once again, that we might do as our Father does, to give our life for the salvation of the world, to share our life as God had shared his life from all eternity. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world knew Him not. He came into His own home, and His own people received Him not. But to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the power to become children of God. This is why Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. To make us once again children of God but just like Nicodemus you know the Pharisees had refused the baptism of John you know that so when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says we know who you are Jesus says buddy you don't know who I am you cannot know who I am because you have not been born again of water and the spirit you have refused to be baptized And therefore, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter into it. And furthermore, you cannot perceive the King who stands before you. Similarly, I don't think we can fully understand the ramifications of this verse. That Jesus has come to make us children of God. Unless we see it through the waters of baptism unless we see it through the waters of baptism, because it is only there that we begin to see things properly. It is only there through the waters of baptism that we are born again. We are born from above. We are born as children of God, and our eyes are opened, and we are given now a divine vision to see the world as it really is, as God has made it to be. Only through those waters of baptism do we discover the fullness of the breadth and depth of God's love for us. Turn your Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Notice what St. Paul says here. He doesn't say we are baptized like Jesus or that we're baptized Well, because Jesus was baptized, and it's good to do things that Jesus does. No, he says you are baptized into Jesus. To be baptized means literally to be plunged. You are plunged into Christ Jesus. You are made one with him, so that your life and his life are one. You share a common life, and your life and my life, and every other baptized Christian shares a common life not isolated from one another. He has come to restore the original unity of creation by filling that creation up with His life. So that I can look into your eyes and I can see the revelation of the image of God Himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, St. Paul talks about this mystery of being baptized into Christ. And he uses an image that is so important to us. But I remember as a young child hearing this, this text in the, in the church. I don't know why this particular text jumped out at me. Except that I rolled my eyes and said, not again. St. Paul says that we are the body of Christ Christ. For just as the body is one and has many members, all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all plunged into or baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all were made to drink of the same Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many." If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And the ear should say, this is where I rolled my eyes, it's like an eight-year-old.
0: Not again.
1: (laughs) But as it turns out, it's one of the most beautiful passages of the entire New Testament. Because it tells us what happens to us when we're baptized. He says in verse 27 that you are the body of Christ, which is the church. The church is the church is the body of Christ. And don't let this, this idea just kind of like, yeah, I've heard this a thousand times and they, and they keep saying it up there. And no, It's a body. St. Paul says, look, okay? Look at how God made a body. So what he says. Look at how God made a body. You want to understand what happens to you when you're baptized? Do you want to understand what the church is? Look at what God made. That's the church. And you're a piece of it not like the way you commonly conceive of it because the body is an organic body and that body has an elbow and it has a hand, it's got a knee and a hip and a foot it's got eyes and ears and all of the members of that body are dependent upon one another for the health of that body. Do you see In a body, if one part of the body refuses to do its job, which is happening all over the place on my body, (laughs) then what happens to the rest of the body? It suffers from it. When you were baptized into Christ, you became interdependent upon one another. The members of the body of Christ, in fact, the entire created order, is as it was in the beginning, waiting for you to do your job. Namely, to give it the life which it needs to live. And if the elbow refuses to do its job, the hand is going to die. Look around the church. You wanna know why half the members are dead? Because the other half aren't feeding the life into the parts of the body necessary. You want to know why our society is going to hell in a handbasket? Why we're murdering our children? Why there's drug users strewn across the streets of Sacramento? I cannot drive for one block in the city, the capital city of California, named after the holy mysteries of God, the sacraments. I cannot drive one block without seeing a drug user lying in the gutter. And it's not President Obama's fault. Okay, maybe it
0: is.
1: (laughs) Sorry, I was playing to the crowd on that one. Okay. St. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians that the church is the body of Christ. And in his letter to the Galatians, that because of this great mystery of our baptism, we are made one in Christ. Christ has restored us to our original state. Pope Benedict says that union with Christ is also union with all those to whom He gives Himself. I cannot possess Christ just for myself, he says. I can belong to him only in union with all those who have become or who will become his his own. Communion draws me out of myself towards him and thus also towards the unity with all other Christians. We become one body completely joined in a single existence. Love of God and love of neighbor are now truly united. God incarnate draws us all to himself. I'm going to turn to Ephesians. St. Paul picks up this theme which he was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 11, he says, And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ himself. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every whim of doctrine. Does this not describe the situation today? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth from the heart of Christ, from the love which has existed from all eternity. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. We are to grow up in every way into Christ Himself from whom the whole body is joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied now he's going underneath the skin look at a body and how it works every joint with which it is supplied nurses can you help me out here and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied when each part when each part is working properly makes bodily growth and upholds itself in love you see, the church, the body of Christ can only be healthy if her members are living the life which God has given us to live and that life is defined by love and love is defined by the giving of our life to another. Christians are made to be lovers because God is love from all eternity. Christians are made to do one thing and that is to give the life we have received to those around us, to till and keep the garden which God has placed us in. You want to see this in real action? Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. I love this text. It's right after Pentecost, and St. Peter and St. John are going down to the temple. Okay, They're going down to the temple to pray in Jerusalem. Some of you have been there with me. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. I shouldn't have said going down to the temple. You always say going up to the temple in Jerusalem. Going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of those who entered the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him. And John said, look at us. Look at us. We have no gold to give you, but in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up." The man was a paralytic, and the man stood up and began to walk. What was true about Jesus Christ became true about the apostles because they became partakers of His divine nature. The Christian vocation is to share God's life with others. There is no other good news. This is the gospel that is the heart of evangelization. Paul VI says that evangelizing is in fact the grace and vocation proper to the church, her deepest identity. She exists in order to evangelize because Christ is the great evangelizer. He is love incarnate. He it is who loves mankind and shares his life with us. We then, as members of his body, have a fundamental vocation and call to share that life with others. In his encyclical, Pope Benedict, in Deus Caritas S, says that the root of all evangelization lies not a human plan of expansion, but rather the desire to share the inestimable gift that God has wished to give us making us shares in his own blessed life. So what is the new evangelization but return, renewal, and restoration to the age-old call of the church? To renew ourselves in our most fundamental nature? To recall the church to her proper identity? And how do we do this? Pope Benedict in addressing catechists, said this, without a doubt, amending of the fabric of society is urgently needed in all parts of the world. But for this to come about, what is needed is to first remake the fabric of our church community itself. Here, in this hall, in this church, if you want to do something about the situation in our world, start right here in this church of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, in this hall tonight, to begin to remake the fabric of the church community itself. And this brings us to our most important point tonight. Evangelizing must begin not as an outward movement, not to go and fix those people out there, but as an internal examination and conversion and renewal of our church. Can we say with St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me? Pope Benedict says that although this task of evangelizing directly concerns the church's way of relating outside herself, it nevertheless presupposes, first of all, a constant interior renewal, a continuous passing, so to speak, from evangelized to evangelizing. In other words, if we seek to heal our society, let us begin by healing our church. And if we seek to heal our church, we need to begin by bringing ourselves back into the full immersion in Christ and in His church. I want to give you a final principle tonight and that is that we cannot love we cannot love what we do not know we cannot love what we do not know evangelization as john paul ii said evangelization and catechesis go hand in hand today pope benedict says it is up to you brothers and sisters to offer the risen Christ to your fellow citizens. It is up to you to proclaim the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of His divinization in your life. But to do that, we must have it first. We cannot love what we do not know. We cannot give what we do not have. The faithful must be recatechized if we are going to bring the faith to others on february 23rd of 2012 pope benedict gathered some of the priests of rome and spoke about this point of catechesis he said that one of the great problems facing the church today is a lack of knowledge of the faith religious illiteracy With such illiteracy, we cannot grow. Therefore, we must reappropriate the contents of the faith, not as a packet of commandments and dogmas, but as a profound reality, a unique reality revealed in all of its profoundness and beauty. We must do everything possible for catechetical renewal in order for the faith to be known, for God to be known, for Christ to be known, for the truth to be known, and for unity in the truth to grow. We cannot, he continued, live in a childhood of faith. Many adults have never gone beyond the first catechesis, meaning they cannot, as adults, with competence and conviction, explain and elucidate the faith to others. In order to illuminate the minds of others, they must have an adult faith one which understands the mysteries of the faith deeply. It is plainly clear, John Paul II said, it is plainly clear that many Catholics have never effectively been incorporated into the life of Christ. Baptized as infants, many have never made a personal commitment to the Lord, as Father was speaking about in his homily. As adolescents and adults, many drift away from the church. Evangelization must be directed to the church itself. My brothers and sisters, if we want to renew the fabric of the church, we must once again come to know God. We must come to know His love for us. We must come to know His transformative power in our life. And we must begin to live once again with that love which is bubbling up, that love which cannot be controlled because it is a spring, a fountain, which is bursting forth from our heart so that every single person that encounters us says, that is a Christian. You see that? That's a Christian. They speak of none other. They act like no other. They live like no other. They are the Christians and they're known for their love for one another because they've come to know the depth and the breadth of God's love for them in the heart of Christ. If we seek to renew our church, if we seek to renew our society, let us begin by renewing and reincorporating ourselves into the mystery of the body of Christ here in this church in which God has planted you. Father asked me to speak for a moment about the Institute. I will simply say this, that I, for many years, counted the faith as nothing in my life. They were the saddest years of my life. And when I discovered God's love again, I set myself on a path to share that with others. That's why I founded the Institute of Catholic Culture. We need to rediscover the beauty of that gift. And then having rediscovered the beauty of that gift, let that gift flow out of us to all those that we encounter, never being ashamed of what we have received. Why not leave them in peace, Pope Benedict asks. Stop talking about your faith, Christians. Leave the people to believe whatever they want. But if you have come to know the love of God and His transformative power in your life, you cannot keep silent for what others are starving for and for what they are made for. We cannot remain silent because if we do, we will continue seeing the effects that is ravaging our society and ravaging our church we must begin to live once again in communion with one another. And that is a very practical and real project. I'll finish with this. The church has given us traditionally three things to do. To give our lives in three ways. In our time, our talent, and our treasure. How many times have you heard your pastors speaking about this? In your time, your talent, and your treasure. I spend most of my time on my cell phone, most of my time at work, most of the time watching CNN, and don't tell me you don't do it. I spend most of my talent at my job, most of my talent at my golf game, most of my talent doing whatever I want to do with it and I spend most of my money buying my cars and my home and my vacation, which I saved for. Stop and start doing what God has asked you to be and to do, to begin to give your life to one another here in this church of the sacred heart. When you stand in church next to your brothers and sisters, and you finish the Mass, do not turn away. Invite them to your home. Begin to build relationships once again, because those relationships are built in the image and likeness of the Holy Trinity. Go back there and help this beautiful lady run that bookstore. She was all alone today. Go help Faye fill the water to be blessed by father begin to eat together again begin to live together again Christians begin to speak together again begin to manifest once again The great gift of the life of the Holy Trinity, which was given to you on the day of your baptism and which you share with every other member of this church. The most important thing you have is not your home. It is not your car. It is not your job. It is the person sitting next to you who shares also that life of the Holy Trinity in their heart and is waiting and is starving for an opportunity to do with it what God made them to do, and that is to share that life with the person next to them. What Father does at the altar with a piece of bread and a chalice of wine is the seed which God planted in Genesis in the beginning. You are meant to till it and keep it and make it more fruitful and bring it to its perfection in your relationships in this church so that the glory of God once again shines In this city, in this diocese, in this country and in this world. And when that happens, when the light of God begins to shine again from the hilltops, the evil one and all of his darkness will be driven out. And life will once again reign on this earth. To him be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God. You you have given the world its true light, Jesus, your Son, the Son of God. You abandoned yourself completely to God's call, and thus became a wellspring of the goodness which flows forth from Him. Show us Jesus, lead us to Him, teach us to know and love Him, so that we too can become capable of true love and be fountains of living water in the midst of a thirsting world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your attention today. Uh, Alright, question and answers. All right, Father, thank you so much for the presentation. I absolutely okay. loved it. Um, so my question is, is the new evangelization, is that more or less an, a passive act or a more so an active, like, I guess, uh, sort of style of trying to spread the faith? I, I'm just trying to see, like, I guess, are, are we going, I guess, from door to door, like trying to spread the faith, like, you know, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, or... You know, like they learned that, <laughs> learn that from us, okay? Right. They didn't invent going door-to-door. That's what Catholics do. Okay. Okay, so they don't let the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have that. Okay, all right, just want to check, just okay. want to check. So, I mean, look, before you go door-to-door... You gotta go meet the person in the pew sitting next to you. That's why at the Institute of Catholic Culture, I mean, we're in, uh, part of our mission is evangelization, but the first step in evangelization, and we haven't gotten past that yet, and in my lifetime, we're not gonna get past it, is, is, is to restore this, what's going on here tonight. This is what we gotta do. We gotta start to live together as a community. We gotta stop stamping the punch card stop talking to me about Sunday obligations stop it you're not made for that okay if you don't meet your Sunday obligation it's a mortal sin that means you're going to go to hell so if you're asking yourself on Sunday am I gonna am I gonna make my Sunday obligation or not you're living on the edge of disaster, (laughs) okay? It's a law, and the laws were given to the Jews. Stop living your Christian life in that way. That law is given so that you know where the edge is. But if you're driving your car up against the edge of the freeway all the time, you're gonna end up going down the embankment, you're gonna die. Stop walking into Mass 10 minutes late and hoping you made it in time for... I don't even know. I I hope nobody in this room knows when you have to get to Mass. I hope you don't. I have no idea. Because I arrive about five hours before liturgy starts on Sunday morning. Okay? So stop living like that. That's why I keep saying in this hall, in this church, fire the lawn mowing guy... And start mowing the church lawn. Start washing the windows of your home. Start inviting the priest over. When's the last time you invited the priest over to your house for dinner? When's the last time you invited someone that you saw at Mass to come to your home after Mass to have have lunch? When's the last time? Christians, you're not living together anymore. You're living the way the devil wants you to live. You're living isolated from one another. And we're starving to death because of it. And if you think you don't know how to cook, just start cooking. It'll come. Invite Father Lundberg over. I heard he makes a pretty mean set of ribs. You know? I'm serious about this. Be the first one to church and the last one to leave. Find every single person you can talk to and share your life with them. Tell them how the faith has changed your life. Tell them what an encounter with God has meant to you. And if you haven't had an encounter with God, then when we're done here, let's go upstairs. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and Master of your life, as your best friend. And don't tell me I sound like an evangelical pastor. They stole that from us too. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: Go up and accept Jesus into your heart. Tell him I want to live my life like you did. And how did he live his life? He lived it with his, with his friends, with the guys around him, with anybody that would come. They filled up houses, they ate together. Get that thing right, learn together, have a Bible study in your home, throw the television out the window. I had to throw that one in there. Throw the television <laughs> out the window and start living again as a Christian as a member of this church, as a member of this church, and you know what's going to happen the next time the bishop comes here, Bishop Burbage is going to come here and he's going to be like, what in the world's going on around here? These people like each other. <laughs> then you go start knocking on doors because you got something to invite them to. How many people invited somebody to come tonight? Okay, put your hands down, not bad. How many people invited somebody to come to Mass last Sunday? Somebody completely new last Sunday. Raise your hand. Look around, Catholics. Come on. Look around. We got a problem on our hands. Because I know you talked to that lady at Costco. And you talked to the guy at the gas station, too. And you called up your old friend from high school. But you didn't invite them to come to the thing that's most important in your life. And because of that, they're starving to death. And they're dying. And you have something they need. Don't you dare keep it to yourself. God didn't. Okay. Uh, Pre-Vatican II, we oh. were taught not to talk in church. <laughs> and if I wait till Mass is over and turn to my neighbor and start and invite him over for dinner and explaining what's on the menu... Um, where do you draw the line on talking in church or even in perpetual adoration chapel versus getting to know everybody out in the narthex or when you leave church? Okay, G- can they use the narthex, Father? Okay. <laughs> go, go out to the narthex, fine. All right. Go out to the narthex. You know, I, I, I'll get to share a, a hobby horse for a second, okay? I come to these masses, uh, wedding masses, and for priests, weddings are like, oh no, not again. Okay, so you never know who you're going to meet. So, uh, so anyways, I come to these wedding masses, and, they're, and these are very conservative, very traditionally-minded Catholics, and the wedding ends, the, the wedding service ends, and everybody kneels down to say thank you to Jesus. I'm probably going to offend most people in this room right now. Everybody says, kneels down to say thank you to Jesus, all the pious people. Now, all the people that don't go to church go out, right? And I look around saying, wait a minute. You just experienced the mysteries of God, and now you're supposed to go out and celebrate the thing. Like, you're supposed to live it out. But we're not living it out. We're not living it out. Okay? I'm not saying not to say thank you to Jesus. But you just spent the last hour and a half doing that thing. That's what Eucharist means. You just did it. And you ain't going to do it better than that. Trust me. So now go out with that gift you've received and tackle that person at the door that hasn't been coming to church. Okay? At a wedding, you guys are the ones that should be dancing and singing. We're the only ones that have a reason to dance and sing because Jesus rose from the dead and we're going to live forever. We're not going to go to hell. Well, I hope not. You got a reason to dance and sing, Christians. Go dance and sing again. Whatever happened to our Catholic culture where we were the ones that threw the parties? They hijacked the parties from us and look at what they look like now. It's embarrassing. (laughs) We're the ones that know how to dance. We're the ones that know how to drink wine. We're the ones that know how to feast. We're the ones that know how to throw the party, and everybody's got to want to come to our house. Come alive again. And if you're saying, I don't know how to do it anymore, it's time to rediscover it. Get out some old, good, old fashioned Irish songbooks and start singing. <laughs> <laughs> and start dancing and hitting your shoes. This is ours. It's ours. So you've got silence and mass. Yeah, okay. I come into church. I don't. I don't fool around. I talk to God and, and in communion with one another. We sing together, and there's a place and a and a and a, and a presence that we have there. I understand that, but but it doesn't end there. It's got to. The fountain's got to come shooting out of you. You know the Samaritan woman. She left her water jar, and she went running for the hills, to her town. And she comes screaming into the village, I think I found him. I think I found the Messiah. And then the apostles come to Jesus and they want him to eat. And he says, I have food of which you do not know. And he says, look, look, it's time for the harvest. And he looks over the hill and the whole Samaritan village is coming over the hill at him. Because of one woman who wouldn't shut her mouth she found something that changed her life, and she couldn't keep it to herself. She couldn't keep it to herself. Jesus rose from the dead. And you know what that means? It's your husband and your mom, your best friend who died of cancer. Everyone who you have seen go into the tomb if they died with Jesus is gonna come out again and you're gonna hold their hand. I'm gonna look into my mother's eyes again. I get to give my mother the hug I didn't get to give her the night she died. And I get to tell her I love her. And what's more is we get to walk hand in hand and dance together. Now I'm gonna tell you something. That's something we're partying about. It's something we're getting together about. It's something we're sharing because I have the most valuable thing that every single person in this society wants so bad. They want it so bad. And we've got to be willing to give it to them. I just keep saying the same thing. Just do it with the guy next to you. <laughs> Start there. Don't worry about knocking on the doors. Okay? Right there. Invite him over. And invite her over, and invite her over and him over this Sunday for Sunday dinner. And make some spaghetti because Italian food's the best. (laughs) All right? God bless you. Thank you for coming. I hope you come this Sunday. This Sunday.
0: Pray for us.